Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. For context, I'd like to read from the beginning of the chapter. And let's recognize that this is the word of the Lord, holy, infallible, without error, able to bring life from death and to strengthen the weak. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we again come before you in humility, asking that you would bless the proclamation, the hearing of your word, that we would be changed from within, transformed supernaturally by the power of the Spirit of God to become who you call us to be in Christ, new creations. Father, we ask that you would help us now to lift our eyes to the hills and to behold the one from whom all our help and all our salvation comes. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Over the last several weeks, we've been working through the beginning of Romans chapter 8. And what we've seen is that Romans 8 is a link back to the end of Romans chapter 5. Paul's theme in this letter to the Romans is justification by faith alone in Christ alone and all by grace alone. And he has not forgotten that theme. He's taken some time to address important points that he knows that his opponents opponents of the truth would raise. And he's done that in chapters 6 and 7, and he's now come back to chapter 8. And he wants the people of God to know this. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To be in Christ is the key phrase that is repeated so many times throughout the New Testament. It is, in fact, the key identifier of the Christian. The term Christian is only used three times. But this phrase, in Christ, and this concept is repeated over 150 times. This is the seminal concept that we must understand and really is what makes Christianity Christianity. We have been brought into union with Christ. We have been grafted into Him in the language of Romans chapter 6. As the branches are grafted into the vine, So we have been grafted supernaturally, spiritually, into the Lord Jesus Christ, and He is now our new identity and our new life. We who are in Christ must understand that we didn't place ourselves into Christ. That's really what Paul has been after in this section and in this chapter in general. This chapter is about the ministry of the Holy Spirit the third person of the blessed Godhead, and perhaps the most underrated and and least thought of of the Holy Trinity. The Holy Spirit is the one who is called the Spirit of life in Romans 8 verse 2. And it is His law or His governing power, as we saw, that has freed us from the governing power of sin and death. That is to say, the ruling principle that governed all of us before we came to Christ. 
sin and death. Because of our first birth in Adam, because of our first parents, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, who sinned when they disobeyed the voice of the Lord and listened to the voice of the serpent, the voice of the lie. They preferred the lie to the truth, and they fell, and they submerged all of mankind into sin. And all mankind has been dominated by sin ever since. Our master was sin. He is the one we served. But the good news, the gospel, is that the spirit of life in Christ, who is in union with him, has taken us out of the realm of death and wickedness, and he's placed us into the realm of life and righteousness in Jesus Christ. He has grafted us with Christ supernaturally. And then Paul says, you must understand that you could never do this yourselves. The Spirit of God has done it because of this reason, verse 3, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And on account of sin, or uh, as a suitable sacrifice for sin, He, God in Christ, condemned sin in the flesh for us. We couldn't do that ourselves. The law was weak, not because the law was weak in itself, but because it was weak through us, through our flesh. Because we didn't have the ability to obey it because of the corruption of our flesh. Because even our minds and our hearts, our affections, our wills were all corrupted. We couldn't obey the law and we didn't have any interest in obeying the law of God because of sin. So God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He sent His Son and He condemned sin in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was not a sinner Himself. He only appeared as every other person in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he was born sinless and he lived a sinless life so that he was the only suitable sacrifice, the only one qualified to lay down his life in the place of others because he did not have any sin of his own to pay for. And Paul doesn't stop there. As we learned last week, he didn't only come to die in order that we might be freed from the guilt of our sin, in order that we might be cleansed and declared not guilty before the court of God, but for this reason, that the righteous requirement of the law, or that the righteousness of the law, verse 4, might be fulfilled in us, literally filled up progressively in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And we learn that Paul is talking about Christians here. Those who walk according to the Spirit are those whose pattern of life is according to, is derived from, is after the Spirit of God because they themselves are born of the Spirit of God. So he's talking about Christians who walk according to their new nature. And he says it's in those people that the righteousness of the law is being filled up in us progressively. And what is that? the very character of God Himself, the righteousness of the law. The holiness, the justice, the goodness of the law, the direct reflection of God's character is being fulfilled in His people progressively. This is our sanctification, brothers and sisters. We have been saved not only to be pardoned, but to walk in newness of life to bring glory to His name by the newness of life that He is now working out in us. Tremendous truth. And so last week we we understood that this is the profile of the righteous. They walk, the pattern of their lives is according to the Spirit of God. And the last question that I think I left you with last time was this. How do we know that we are truly walking in holiness? How do we know that we are walking according to the Spirit and that our natures are new? How do you know that you are spiritually alive and not spiritually dead any longer? You see, there are many professing believers, believers who think that they're walking according to the Spirit because they do, quote-unquote, good works And they call those works or they think of those works as holiness. But in fact, they're just dead works of the flesh for many. 
Paul is going to give us the true test of holiness today. Really in one verse, Romans 8, 5. And that's where we're going to spend our time today, Lord willing. So the one point that I want to leave with you today, typically we have a couple of points. We have one today. It's the preoccupation of the righteous. The preoccupation of the righteous. Last time we looked at the purpose of the freedom, it's holiness. We looked at the profile of the righteous, those who walk according to the Spirit. Today, it's the preoccupation or that which consumes the righteous person, that which engrosses his thinking, the passion of his life. This really is the big idea that I want to leave you with today. The preoccupation of those who are not condemned, that's where we start in Romans 8.1. In other words, those who are justified, it's the same thing as saying not condemned, the preoccupation of the justified is they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That's the big idea for today. And I want to unpack that together with you as we look at Romans 8.5. Let's read this together. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Now, when Paul begins, verse 5, he again begins with the word for. That's a connecting thought to what came immediately prior. So he is going to explain what it is to walk in uh, the Spirit or according to the Spirit. And he says, those who live is the way the New King James translates it. Actually, it's not the word for live. It's the word that means to be. It's a verb. And he uses the present participle, so it really is translated for those who have their being or those who are according to the flesh. He's talking again about nature, and we talked about this somewhat last week because we had the same prepositional phrase, according to, in verse 4. According to, as a quick reminder, refers to the place from which something comes. That preposition used in this construction refers to origin. It, it speaks of nature. And so, and so what he's saying is, those who have their being according to the flesh are those whose origin, whose nature is the realm of the flesh, who live in that realm. Paul's talking about unregenerate, unsaved people, people whose nature is fleshly. And you might recall when we talk about flesh, and this concept has come up several times since our study in chapter 7, it just means our unredeemed humanity. It, re it refers to that which has fallen in us because of the fallen of Adam and Eve. It, it refers to the material and the non-material components of who we are by nature, from Adam. In other words, not just the body, the physical body, but the non-material components that make you, you, your thinking, your emotion, your will, all of that was corrupted at the fall, spiritually darkened or spiritually dead. And another way of thinking about that and the way Scripture talks about that is alienated, separated from the life of God. The natural man lives according to the flesh. He has his being according to the flesh. He is the way Paul puts it, in the flesh. That's his identity. He's governed by the flesh. He's governed by sin. So Paul, first of all, in verse 5, is talking about unsaved people, the unregenerate. And he says, they are those who set their minds on the things of the flesh. Now, most of the translations read as if the word minds were a noun. But actually, it's a verb in the Greek. The way the Greek reads is literally this way. The things of the flesh, they mind. So it's an action he's talking about. Uh, the word for mind is phroneo. phroneo. It, it means to think on, to regard, or to direct one's thinking towards something else. Another good translation for that might be the word muse, M-U-S-E, which is in the title of the sermon today, the muse of the mind. To muse just means to gaze at thoughtfully, to engage your thinking towards something and to give your attention to it regularly, <clears throat> to be absorbed in thought with. That's this idea. It's not the word for mind, but really mindedness. 
It's the bent that you have, your inclination, what you're drawn to in your mind. And there's something implied by this word mind because there's a notion of that which compels the mind to something else, that which draws the mind to something else. So this word mind or mindedness is really intimately tied to the notion of the heart in Scripture. The heart meaning not just the feelings, but the thought life, the affections of the soul, and the will, the desires that we all have, your deepest desires. The the mind is intimately tied with the heart. So he's saying it's not just the thinking, but it's the thinking that's directed to something because of emotion and desire that undergirds it. It's the heart. So the inclination of the mind is directed to, to what? Well, to that which it loves, that which it cherishes, that which it desires and delights in most. And Paul uses the present active tense here for this word of setting the mind on, meaning it's a, it's a habit, it's something that this person does on a regular basis. So, so he's saying those whose nature is flesh, gaze at, are absorbed with, the things of the flesh, because those are the things that he loves most. It's a very simple principle captured by Proverbs 23, verse 7, which I put on the covers of your bulletins. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. In other words, you are what you think about in your heart. In your heart. What you set your mind on regularly and routinely tells you what your nature is. It's diagnostic. That's why Proverbs 4 verse 23 says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. One of the greatest questions that anyone can ask themselves is this, who are you? Who are you? And the inclination of your thought life tells you the answer to that question. Here's how our Lord put it in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our hearts are drawn to that which we treasure the most. And one's nature determines what he loves most. If your nature is flesh, meaning you're unsaved, you love the things of the flesh. You delight in the things of the flesh. You love the things that can gratify the flesh. And bring pleasure to the flesh. Why is it that the world craves stimulation of the senses? Because they love the flesh. And because they're fleshly in their nature. A dog is a carnivore because that's his nature. He loves meat. He craves meat. If you give him a bowl of vegetables, he's probably going to reject it. In the same way, a natural person, a person who's born from Adam who's born of this earth, is a sinner by nature. And what does he crave? Sin. Sin. And nobody can change that nature apart from a work of grace. Jesus, in speaking with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Flesh can only come from flesh. Spirit never comes from flesh. So Paul is talking about unregenerate, unsaved people whose hearts are directed to pursue everything that pertains to this domain of the flesh. And I want to ask this question, what does it mean to set one's mind on the things of the flesh? We need to ask that question and we need to understand what that means. What are the pursuits of the flesh? When we think about setting our minds on the flesh, what do we think about? Well, Turn to Galatians chapter 5 with me, and let's look together at a list that Paul provides that is distinguished from the fruits of the Spirit, which we know. There are works of the flesh, and there are works of the Spirit. We want to look first at these works of the flesh and the things that the natural man pursues. Look at Galatians 5, starting at verse 19. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, manifest, obvious, which are sexual immorality, 
That means unlawful sexual activity. Impurity refers to sexual uncleanness. Sensuality, it's a strong desire for what is shameless, what is filthy. Idolatry, we know that that means the worship of other gods, those who are not the true and living God. Sorcery, sorcery is the Greek word pharmakia, sounds like pharmacy, because it was the idea of mind-altering drugs that were always associated with pagan worship, idolatry, sorcery. So this first grouping, just stop there with me for a moment. This first grouping he's describing is really uncleannesses within one's own body. And you might say, or the average person might say, maybe even a professing Christian might say, well, these are outward, overt acts of sin. I'm not like that. I, I cannot relate to these things. I don't have an appetite for those things. But let's keep going with his next grouping. Look what he says next. He says enmities. That means hatred or hostility. Strife. That's argumentative or belligerent. People who just love to quarrel. They can know that they're wrong, but they want to argue with you anyway. Jealousy. That's resenting what someone else has or is or does. Outbursts of anger. That's pretty self-explanatory. Selfish ambition. There's the desire to put one's self forward, to promote oneself. Dissensions, those who cause divisions among people and among brethren, even within the church. Factions, factions is the word for heresies. It's the same idea as dissensions or divisions, but on doctrinal lines. Those who depart from the truth of Scripture in order to push their own opinions of what they think Scripture says and who depart from the unity of the faith. And then envying. Envying is a feeling of discontentedness or resentfulness that is aroused by knowing someone else has something or that they have certain qualities that you admire or successes that they've had. So what are we talking about in this grouping? This is a grouping of sinful attitudes of the heart that one has toward other people, interpersonal now. And those all stem from issues of anger and pride in the sinful heart. Those are also the things of the flesh. Not just the so-called overt, outlandish, obvious things. I'm not a murderer, an adulterer, a thief, whatever that might be. And then he finishes with drunkenness and carousing, people who enjoy drinking to lose control of themselves and who enjoy being around others who like to lose control of themselves, walking through the streets loudly, that kind of imagery. So it's not just the outward acts of sin you might think of, but the pursuits of the flesh also include these attitudes of the heart. These are all things of the flesh, and actually if we go back to the first list of the uncleannesses of the flesh and we hear Jesus in his true exposition of what it means to be an adulterer or sexually immoral, it always starts in the heart, doesn't it? It's not just the outward act that counts as the act, the sin. It's looking at a woman with lust in your heart that counts you an adulterer in the eyes of God. So people who have their being in the flesh, who are fleshly by nature, their hearts are directed to these things. And I want you to pay attention to these attitudes because if they are the pattern of your life, that tells you something very diagnostic and important about your being, your nature, who you think you are. But this idea of setting one's mind on the flesh is really broader still. It means setting one's heart on the things of this earth without care or concern for the God of the Bible and for what's important to him. I want to give you an example of this in Philippians chapter 3. This was our, our call to worship this morning. And in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 17, Paul says, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, 
whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Many walk. Paul's talking about a pattern of life that many fall into or that are characterized by. And this would have been shocking because Paul is addressing here, when he says enemies of the cross of Christ, he's addressing opponents, and we don't know exactly who. I mean, we have an idea. Paul dealt with the antinomians, those who uh, believed that grace was just a license to sin as much as you want. He dealt with the Judaizers and the Libertines, um, or excuse me, the Judaizers, who would have said, well, you have to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved, and they were the legalists. Um, Whoever Paul's addressing here, he's addressing professing believers. He's addressing those who are possibly even leaders in the church who may have very orthodox beliefs, and yet they're ungodly in their lives because of the attitudes of their hearts, the pattern of the attitude of their hearts. This is addressed to people who think that they're saved, who are really unsaved. And he says their end, their telos, their Final destination point is destruction. Their God is their belly. In other words, they they worship themselves. They're chiefly serving their own appetite, the lust of the flesh, the strong cravings that their flesh has, whose glory is in their shame. They boast in what is shameful in the sight of God. They think it's good. And why are they enemies? Why are they those whose end is destruction and who worship themselves? Here's the summary statement, because they mind earthly things. They mind earthly things. They savor and delight in the things of this earth. And those things might be overtly sinful. They might be um, gratification for, with too much food or too much drink, um, unlawful sexual activity, exploiting others for personal gain. Those would all be overtly sinful activities. But these also might be covertly sinful things. These might just be people who are hungry for power. These are people who want position and want to promote themselves and who love the praise of men, all while parading under the guise of moral, religious, upright people. Their entire focus is on appearance. It's on the outward. It's on desiring to appear holy in the sight of others so that others would think well of them while all the meanwhile they have no spiritual life in their souls. They talk readily about spiritual things. The Word of God is on their lips, but their hearts are inclined to evil. Isn't this exactly what Jesus talked about with regard to the Pharisees of His day who were so concerned with external appearance and on what man was able to accomplish because they were so addicted to the praise of men? Jesus said, these people, quoting Isaiah 29, they draw near to me with their mouth. And honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Why? Because their mindedness is drawn to the things of the flesh. Their preoccupation is the flesh, not the spirit. I want to show you some other examples also of how setting one's mind on the things of the flesh can be even more insidious, even more subtle and hard to detect than what we've been talking about. Um, Matthew chapter 16, if you would turn there with me. In Matthew chapter 16, we have a, a high point in the life of Peter who makes a confession that he didn't come to, he didn't uh, derive from himself. It was revealed to him concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and who he really is. Look at verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or son of Jonah, or John. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You didn't come to this conclusion on your own, Peter. My Father revealed this to you, and you're making the right confession. And I also say to you that you are 
Peter, and on this rock, the rock of his confession of who Jesus is, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. This is a wonderful high point in the life of Peter. He got it right. He identified Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ who was to come, and he was called blessed because of it. But on the heels of that, look what happens now in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful. This is the same word we're talking about in Romans 8, mindedness. You are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Peter thought that he was being spiritual, that he was saying the right thing. He didn't want Jesus to die. Far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you. That sounds like a noble thought, a noble gesture. But Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you're thinking like an earthly man. You are savoring the things of the earth and this domain which is ruled by the prince of the power of the air, Satan. You're not savoring the things of God, but the things of men. And that's devilish. I want you to notice there's nothing overtly sinful here, overtly sinful. Perhaps there's something covertly sinful. I mean, what's Peter's motive in saying what he said? Was it that he wanted Christ to set up an earthly kingdom where he would reign and Peter perhaps would be his right-hand man or somebody of great position and power in the kingdom and that was really motivating him to say what he said? Or maybe was it just that he loved his master and he didn't want him to die? And he's trying to problem solve what Jesus said according to his own fleshly wisdom. But Jesus condemned that kind of thinking, didn't he? He condemned it. He calls him Satan. Satan, that word means opponent, one who stands opposed to. Opposed to what? Opposed to the purposes of God, to God's thoughts. Why? Because if Jesus doesn't go to the cross, then God would be in violation of his eternal covenant of redemption which the scripture in Titus 1-2 says that he promised before the world began. God made a promise before there was an earth or any people in it. Well, who did he make a promise to? To himself. God the Father made a promise to God the Son. God the Son made a promise to God the Father. And the Spirit with them that they would carry out this plan of redemption. And if Jesus doesn't do his part of going to the cross and laying down his life as a sacrificial lamb for the sins of all his people, God would be called a liar because he's made a promise that he will not keep. And the second half of that coin is that there would be no, no hope of redemption for any of us. We would all be condemned forever. And so Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, opponent. You savorest not the things of God but the things of men. Brothers and sisters, there's an important lesson here for us. Earthly things, the things of the flesh, may not seem like sinful things at first. They might even seem like right thinking to the human mind. But to savor the things of the earth and not to savor the things of heaven, that is condemned thinking. It's devilish. And really, apart from the grace of God, rescuing a person to be able to set their minds on the things of God and not the things of this earth, their end will be destruction. I like the way that the preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones um, spoke about this particular section in Romans 8 and about 
what it is that Paul has in mind when he talks about the things of the flesh. He says this, Paul has in mind man's highest pursuits, his philosophy, his art, his culture, his music, that never get beyond the flesh. God is outside it all. He is excluded from it. There's nothing spiritual about it. Men may write very cleverly and in a very learned, interesting, and entertaining manner about social conditions. They can tell us how to ameliorate bad conditions, how to improve them. They can write eloquently about forming some sort of utopia. They can produce masterpieces of art and of literature and of music, but there is no soul there. There is no God there, no spirit there. It is all after the flesh. That's what makes the things of the flesh so evil. They operate and seek to operate totally independently of God, as if God were not there. This is the spirit of man of the age who turns his back on God and seeks to live out his life pursuing his own interests and pleasures, totally ignoring God, though he knows God in his mind. That's the essence of the things of the flesh. Now, what's the contrast to that? Well, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, that is, those who have their being and their nature from the Spirit Himself, who are spiritual, that's what that means, derived from the Spirit, born from the Spirit, So he's talking about the regenerate now in contrast to the unregenerate. He's talking about saved people. Those who have their being according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The muse of their minds, what they're inclined to and drawn to and desirous of and actively pursuing is the things of the Spirit. What are the things of the Spirit which the spiritual person minds and pursues? I want to give you several things here. The first thing is this, Scripture. What are the things of the Spirit? Scripture, which comes directly from the Spirit. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, literally breathed by God, breathed out, God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It comes from the Spirit of God, and those who are spiritual set their minds on the things of the Spirit, His Word. Another thing, what Paul calls heavenly things. Now going back to Philippians chapter 3, and those who walk as enemies of the cross. Here's the contrast that Paul gives in Philippians chapter 3 to those who set their minds on earthly things. He says in verse 20 of chapter 3, for our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship, it's the word for commonwealth. Our community, the place of origin from which we hail, the place where our names are registered and recorded, is heaven. That is our citizenship. That's where we belong. That's where we are, in fact, seated now with Christ. Ephesians chapter 2. Citizens of heaven do not set their minds on, are not inclining their minds toward the things of the earth. Their minds are inclined toward the things where they hail from. Heaven. From the word which comes down from heaven to us. They think heavenly thoughts. They speak with the language of heaven, the word of God. They act like citizens of heaven who are in accordance with the king of heaven and the law of the land of heaven. Citizens of earth mind earthly things. Citizens of heaven mind heavenly things. Pretty simple thought, right? Your true nature is evidenced by the things your mind is drawn to. Paul also commands us to set our minds on what he calls things above. Similar concept. In Colossians chapter 3, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. 
Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Where? Above, where he is seated. So put your mind on the place where Christ is, which is where you are, because you've been spiritually born from above and placed into union with him. Your true position is in heaven if you are a son of God. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 24 says this, The way of life winds upward for the wise. Very interesting phrase. The way of life winds upward for the wise, that he may turn away from hell below. The path to hell is a windy path that heads downward for the fool. But the wise, the person who fears the Lord, whose heart is inclined to the Lord, his way of life is one that winds upward. The things of the Spirit are the things that are above, the heavenly things, the Word of God. Paul also describes it as the things that are not seen, invisible things. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. There's a lot of wisdom right there. Those who live into the Spirit do not spend their time gazing at temporary things that are visible. Everything that stimulates the senses. We don't spend the majority of our time on that. We gaze at eternal things. We anticipate our glorification. We think about heaven, the new earth, seeing God, worshiping Him without the hindrance of the flesh. The things that are not seen are the things of the Spirit. And then, of course, as we learned in Galatians chapter 5, by way of contrast to the things of the flesh, we have the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness and self-control. Those who are spiritual want to bear the fruit of the Spirit. They are those who are now married to the risen Christ, as we learned in Romans chapter 7, verse 4, in order that we should bear fruit to God, no longer bear fruit to death as we did in the flesh when we were governed and controlled by the flesh. Those who are governed and controlled by the Spirit long to and actually do, by the grace of God, bear the fruit of the Spirit. Let me just give you a brief list of some things that spiritual people set their minds on on a regular basis. And I want you to see how it aligns with your mindedness, with the inclination of your own heart and mind. Christians are those who think about the Lord God of heaven and earth the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We consider His glorious attributes. We consider all His works. We think about the Word of God and we think about spiritual truth. We love to discern truth from error. We think about our souls and how we've been delivered from the power of sin and death in order that we might walk in newness of life. We set our minds on the souls of others and the judgment that we know is coming for them. And we desire their salvation. We think about holiness and how it is that we please the Lord on a daily basis. We think about the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in daily against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We think about the weapons of our warfare not being physical, but being spiritual. We think about the armor of God that we must put on in its entirety daily in order to stand against the wiles of the devil and his attacks. We think about the brevity of this life, the imminence of the death of the body, and the certainty of the life to come. We think of and long to drop this body of death. And we look forward to the new glorified body which is created after the likeness of the glorified Lord Jesus Christ's body, and to drop these final vestiges of sin forever. We long for heaven. We long to be among an innumerable company of angels and to be with the church of God of all time, the spirits of just men made perfect. 
We long to live in the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwells righteousness. We think about seeing God face to face and, as the psalmist says, to finally experience satisfaction for the first time. In short, spiritual people set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And there must be a careful attention that's given to these things, brothers and sisters. We must muse on these things. We must gaze at them with intensity on a regular basis. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And the context there is he's talking about that it's the Lord who alone can remove the veil, the blindness from the heart and from the mind of a person in order to be able to see Christ clearly throughout the Scriptures. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And we all, with unveiled face, the veil has been removed, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Beholding is the word that means to gaze at intently, to muse, if you will. And we are to gaze at the glory of the Lord, not at ourselves, but to look intently at Him with the same intensity that a man looks at himself in the mirror to discern what kind of a person he is. That's the kind of intensity that Christians have when they behold the glory of the Lord, Jesus Christ. And as we do that wonderfully, He transforms us from within, from one degree of glory to another, to become more like that one that we're looking at, that we're beholding, even the Lord Jesus Christ. James has something to say about this as well. He says in his letter, chapter 1, verse 25, he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, and there he's talking about the Word of God as being that perfect law of liberty. Those who look at the Word of God and continue in it, he is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. And the word, I love the word that he uses there for looks. It's not, the essence is not captured in the English when, when we read that, he who looks at the perfect law of liberty. It's actually the word in Greek that means to stoop down and to pay attention to very carefully, to look curiously at and to study. We are to stoop down and look at this wondrous word of God and gaze at it with intensity on a daily basis. Why would we do that? Because our hearts are inclined that way, because we're born of the Spirit, because we find pleasure and delight in the law of the Lord. What are we saying overall here? I hope the concepts are simple to understand now. We are saying that unsaved people are inclined to the things of the flesh because that's their nature. And saved people, in contrast, are inclined to the things of the Spirit because their nature is spiritual. That is the preoccupation of the righteous. That is the thing that they are given to, that they are engrossed with. And, and it, it grows in intensity as we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our intensity is only growing. Our desire to gaze increases as we grow in the faith. Some might ask, though, is there ever a crossover between the two? In other words, I mean this. Do saved people ever set their minds on the things of the flesh? And do unsaved people ever set their minds on the things of the Spirit? That's a fair question. I was helped a great deal this week as I was thinking about this in reading John Owen. John Owen being the Puritan in the 17th century, the 1600s, who was a scholar, he was a pastor, he was a theologian. Um, when writing about spiritual mindedness, what he likened mindedness to is to the sum total of the thoughts of a person. And he said, that flow of thought is like water. It's like water that naturally runs downhill. The natural person naturally thinks thoughts that gravitate down toward the earth, right? And he says, the only way to get water moving uphill is you need pressure. You need a pump of some kind. 
And outward pressures and troubles of different kinds can act like that pump to what he says, quote-unquote, force our thoughts up to God. And he points to Psalm chapter 78, which I also found very helpful, and I'm going to read with you. He, he, um, let's just look at or listen to Psalm 78, starting in verse 34. This is concerning God's kindness to a rebellious house of Israel. Um, he's recounting all that God has done for Israel and bringing them out of Egypt and showing his faithfulness to them time and time again despite their unfaithfulness and their distrust of him. And the psalmist says this, when he killed them, when God killed Israel, then they sought him and returned and sought earnestly for God. And they remembered that God was their rock and the most high God their redeemer. But they deceived him with their mouth and lied to him with their tongue. For their heart was not prepared to remain with him, reading from the LSB, which is really the right sense of it, nor were they faithful in his covenant. This is so diagnostic right here. There was a pressure that the Lord brought to the people when he killed many of them. And in that pressure, many of them were forced in their thinking to God. But they deceived him with their mouth and they lied to him with their tongue because their heart was not prepared to remain with him. It was a temporary pressure that brought their thinking to the Lord. It engaged the water uphill, but it didn't remain. And we think about those kinds of pressures that can come in the life that we're all familiar with. Pressures like a natural disaster or an act of war or being diagnosed with a serious illness or losing a loved one, a family member or a friend. Those are all pressures that can force one's thoughts against the natural inclination of the heart, which is to the earth and to fleshly things, up to God for a time. But what happens when the pressures are removed is the question. Well, if the nature hasn't changed and the nature is still fleshly, water begins to flow downhill again. The sum total of the, that person's thoughts will revert to going to the earth and to the things of the flesh. Why? Because there's no genuine spiritual principle or life in the soul to keep the water pumping up the hill. Turn with me to Psalm 45. I just want to illustrate this in one other place here. Psalm 45. This was our reading this morning. Psalm 45 is thought of as a wedding psalm. <clears throat> it is uh, written by the sons of Korah or attributed to them as they contemplate the glories of the Messiah to come and of his bride, this marriage that there has been consummated. And he starts by saying in verse 1 of chapter 45, my heart is overflowing with a good theme. And the word that's used in the Hebrew there, rachash, it's um, the word that means to boil or bubble up as a fountain. It actually refers to the sound that water makes when it boils. So try to envision that in your minds. And he's saying his heart is bubbling up like that when he considers, when he muses and thinks on the glory of the Messiah and of his bride, the church. Um, we know that this psalm is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, if you look at verses 6 and 7, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A, of a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. That's quoted by the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, and it's attributed to the Son, the Lord Jesus. So, this psalmist, or the sons of Korah, are, are saying that their hearts are rejoicing. They're, they're, there's an element of bubbling up when they think on the glory of the Christ Here's what John Owen says about this bubbling up, and specifically in Psalm 45, 1, he says, It is a picture of a spring of water bubbling up. His spiritual thoughts bubble up from a living spiritual spring within him. This is true spiritual mindedness. 
There is in the regenerate heart a living spring full of spiritual things that bubbles up into holy thoughts. Isn't that wonderful? Principle of life that's in the heart, a pump that causes the water to bubble up and flow uphill. Jesus addressed this very topic with the woman of Samaria at the well in John chapter 4. You remember the account. Um, This woman comes to draw water. Jesus tells her, give me a drink, (laughs) which shocked her and because the Samaritans have no dealings with the Jews. And and she says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me? I'm a Samaritan. Jesus answered and said to her in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Living water. And then you come down to, uh, actually just verse 11 there. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, this physical water. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst ever. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up, literally leaping up, bubbling up into everlasting life. That's what he's talking about. And we know from John 7, a short couple of chapters later, that this refers to the Holy Spirit of God. Because when Jesus is standing on the last day of the feast, John seven thirty seven, he stands and he cries out, if anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers, an abundance of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is the activity of the Holy Spirit of God who causes a bubbling up within the heart of an individual. And that's observed and noted and detected as that person muses and thinks on the wonders of God the Messiah. The Spirit of God is that pump that continuously moves water uphill, moves the overall flow of thoughts generally in the direction of heaven and the Spirit. So yes, it's true that unsaved people sometimes have thoughts that are forced upward to heaven when God brings certain pressures, but that's not their mindedness. That's not their overall pattern. This is, I hope you see, very much tied to the idea of a walk, the general pattern and trajectory of a person's life with regard to their thinking. That person does not have a spiritual mindedness who is unsaved because as soon as that pressure is removed, they revert to their old course of life, thinking the thoughts of the flesh. And conversely, it's true that saved people can have fleshly thoughts and distractions that clog up the pump, if you will, The pump is flowing freely and bubbling, but sin causes an obstruction to that pump. And so the Spirit of God then prompts us to repent and to confess our sin to the Lord. And as we do that, He removes the obstruction and the waters are restored to a fervent bubbling action. I think that's exactly what Paul is trying to convey here in Romans 8 verse 5. People who are fleshly have the inclination toward earthliness. Those who are spiritual, their hearts are inclined toward heavenly things because of this gracious pump, the Holy Spirit of God, who is moving them in that direction. You know, in Revelation chapter 7, we read about the servants of God, the 144,000, which I don't believe is a literal number. I believe that's symbolic of all of the saints of God of all time, the 12 um, 
tribes of Israel representing the Old Testament saints, the 12 apostles representing all the New Testament saints, the 12 times the 12, the multiplication of all, multiplied by the number of immensity, 1,000, the 144,000. And we read that all of them are sealed in one specific part of their bodies. Do you remember where that is? The forehead. Why are they sealed in the forehead? Because that is the mind. That is the mindedness. The children of God are known by their mindedness. They set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That's their marking. And it's evidenced through the life, what they speak, how they live, how they treat others, how they are in their private time when no one else is watching. Friends, how do you know what the musing of your mind is? Here's a simple test. What is it that you think about when you are relaxed? When there are no quote-unquote pressures that are being brought to bear on your life for that time? Where is it that your mind naturally wanders to? John Owen said it this way, But when a person is relaxed and free from all cares and worries, and his mind is free to think as it pleases, then we can see what thoughts are natural to it. If these are useless, foolish, proud, ambitious, lustful or degrading than such is the true nature of the heart of the person and the person. But if they are holy, spiritual, and heavenly, so is the heart of the person. How do you know that you're walking in true holiness and that you're not self-deceived? It's not just the deeds that you do. It's your mindedness that proves what your nature is. If you do good works, so-called, but your heart is inclined toward evil, your works are not holy because you're not holy. But if you do good works because you love the Lord, you recognize what He's done for you, and you want to live your life in thanksgiving to Him, praising Him, worshiping Him, then you know that your nature has changed. So with this understanding, this really helps us, I think, to work backwards to the beginning of Romans chapter 8 and to understand what it is that Paul is saying. He's saying, if you understand the musing of your mind and you understand that it's spiritual, that's how you know that the requirement of the law is being fulfilled in you, that your character is being transformed to be more like that of the Lord's, That's how you know that the spirit of life has delivered you from the governing power of sin and death. That's how you know that you're truly in Christ, grafted into Him, united with Him. And that's how you know that you're no longer condemned. In other words, you're justified. Your mindedness. Christians are those who are justified. They've been declared right with God. They've been brought into the presence of the Lord through the Lord Jesus Christ, who has, as Paul said in Romans 5, given us our introduction. He's brought us into the presence of the majesty of God. Why? So that we can stand firm in His grace, gazing at Him, worshiping Him, setting our minds on Him. Psalm 27, verse 4. I'm going to leave you with this this morning. David, his one desire. He said this, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold, to gaze, to muse upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. May it be so for all of us who name the name of Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are glorious. Who is like unto you, Lord? Awesome in majesty and power, dominion, strength, holiness. One who is of purer eyes than to behold evil. Father, thank you for looking upon sinners as we are and having great mercy and grace for us a flood of grace that causes you to not withhold even what is dearest and most precious to you, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Beloved One, to give Him over to death for your enemies, that we might be brought to you, 
to have restoration, reconciliation, forgiveness, cleansing, new standing with you, and a new life in Christ empowered by your glorious Holy Spirit who causes us to walk in your way. That it may be said of us, we are the people of the Lord truly, and you are our God. Father, forgive us our sins. Forgive us, Lord, who are spiritual for our earthly thinking, the things that we revert to, the things that we get caught up in, the things that entrap us easily. Lord, help us. Cause our minds to be fixed on you. Cause us quickly to repent when our minds stray. Bring us back to you, Lord, that we might rejoice in our God, that we might delight in your way and delight in the work of your hands that is truly each of us who have been created in Christ. We praise you. We thank you. We ask for your honor and your glory in this church and in every gospel-preaching church. In Jesus' name, amen.